We're going to continue in our Lion-Hearted series, and as we do that, we've been looking at David's 37 mighty men. So if you haven't heard of King David before, he was the one who got famous by killing Goliath, and we fast-forward into his life during the time that he's actually become king. It's during that time he has 37 mighty men who are just designed for vision and for legacy and for loyalty. And today we're going to look at the character quality of tenacity. What is tenacity? Because of these 37 mighty men, there are three that kind of rise to the top for their tenaciousness. Tenaciousness or tenacity is the ability to hold on, to hang on, and push on, no matter what the circumstances. And these three men have that because they meet a God that David knew that was incredibly tenacious as well. Have you ever come across somebody tenacious? It's the employee. You give them a job to do and all obstacles come against them. All reasons they can't do it come against them. But ultimately they find a way to push through and get it done. Maybe like I grew up in Chicago uh, during my college years. That's when uh, Michael Jordan was, was uh, known for, at the peak of his success, going out and running drills again and again and working on fundamentals. Tenaciousness in the little things. Maybe Lou Gehrig. You talk about a grip that doesn't slip. He's living in the shadow of Babe Ruth, and yet he goes out every day and just swings and swings and swings, stays for decades, and ultimately gets an award for 2,100 consecutive games. It wasn't broken until 1995. 23 grand slams in his career, simply by going out again and again and again and faithfully swinging that bat. But sometimes it's in the middle of the success. David's mighty men, these were the, 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 the purple heart winners of the day. These were the green berets of the day. You become so successful that the little things don't matter anymore. They're beneath you. In fact, a couple of months ago, I saw an article, a story told of Brad Gobright. And Brad is a free climber who's just a veteran climber from rock climbing. And as a, a veteran, he's in Mexico and he sends out a, a tweet to see if there's somebody else who wants to climb with him. They're climbing this incredible 2,500-foot uh, surface. And as they're going up, on the way down, they decide to simul-repel, which means they got one cord hooked up to two people. One goes down, the other goes down, and you repel your way down and keep resurfacing. Well, he knew as a veteran climber that one of the things you do as a climber is you tie a knot at the end of the rope. But you know what? I've done it plenty of times. I don't need to tie the rope. And I probably have plenty of rope to make it down to the next surface. So this veteran world-class climber, starts scurrying down the rope to rappel. He gets to the end of the rope and there was no knot and he had miscalculated and he fell 600 feet to his death. And because he was hooked up to a buddy, that buddy fell, luckily landed in a tree and survived. He'd become big enough and successful enough not to care about the little things. And one little knot, one little knot cost him his life. Tenacity Tenacity is the ability to say, I'm not big enough or successful enough to give up on the little things. In fact, are you big enough and successful enough to care about the little things? Because those little things matter. And the message of the Bible, the message of these three characters is that there's a God of the universe who's big enough and successful enough, but wow, does he care faithfully about the little things and doing it over and over again. In fact, here's the account we get today of three of David's top mighty men. And what they do when it comes to these little things. 
Now these were the heads of the mighty men. These are the top three of all the different lion-hearted men whom David had who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom. Joshabim, Eleazar, they were with David at this weird location called Pasadim. Now there was Philistines gathered for battle. And as I talked the last couple weeks, these were the terrorists of their day coming in and stealing and raping and, 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 and kidnapping people. So they've come into the territory. David's top three men are there. And there was a piece of ground full of barley. There's a farm. Like of all the strategic cities, there's a little piece of barley field. And yet these three men are defending this little barley field, tenaciously caring about this little piece, despite their success and despite their accolades. And because of their commitment to faithfully defend the little things, God grants them victory over the Philistines. Which gives us two questions I want you to ask yourself. When you think about your tenacity, number one, are you building your own kingdom, your own little castle, or are you expanding a greater kingdom? Haven't you met people that you worked with, worked for, a boss? Haven't your kids been on soccer teams with somebody? And you know that, that one girl who, who's the star scorer, it's all about building her own castle, getting her own stats up. Versus someone else who's willing to pass, they're willing to assist, they're willing to do something that's part of the greater story. Haven't you met a boss that's all about his own or her own credit versus serving the greater, expanding a higher priority? What's amazing about these three mighty men is that they're not about building their own accolades, though they have an incredible resume. They're actually about tying their story and their actions into a higher kingdom. Look what happens in the the passage here. We, We learn about these incredible guys. They strengthen themselves with David, but their real motivation was to strengthen themselves with him in his kingdom, to make him king. Their motivation was always something more than just, it's about me, it's about my resume, it's about my accolades, it's about how I come across. Have you met someone like that? Maybe you've been coming to Horizon, you're like, I'm not sure about the whole the Jesus thing or God thing, and I think a lot of Christians are hypocrites, in fact, I've met lots of them, but I've come across someone I work with, a neighbor, a coach, someone who serves on a board with me, and there's some greater motivation to them. Their story is connected to some higher story, some higher purpose, and I'm interested. They're humble, but they're ambitious. I had a friend who was transitioning. They had a succession plan they were putting together for a multi-million dollar global organization. And as they were looking for successors to replace him as CEO, they, they would bring these successors in to interview them in his home. And the guy they ultimately picked to be the successor for this gigantic organization was a guy named Gene. He said the reason Gene ultimately got the job is after the weekend that we brought him in, he said, hey, can I talk to you for a moment? So Gene and the CEO, uh, we're going to have a little chat after the meeting, and they walked into the kitchen. And Gene immediately saw the dishes were stacked up from their meeting. And just out of instinct, he walked over and started doing dishes in the CEO's house as they were talking together. They talked about the job, and they talked about dreams and hopes and strategies. But he said, it was at that moment I knew I was dealing with somebody with a different motivation. He was willing to serve and do whatever needed to be done, and it was just instinctual, and it caught his attention. He wasn't about building his own castle, but expanding a greater kingdom. Second question. Are you big enough to care about the little things? Again, this is a barley field, and these are the who's who Green Beret Purple Heart winners of the day. And here they are, and the passage says, defending a farm, a little, this is a piece of a barley field. Do the little things matter 
and doing them over and over and over again. See, what motivated David's mighty men was they came across what I call the main message of the Bible. And the main message of the Bible is that there is a God who is above all things, controls the universe, and holds our atoms together. And that God came to earth. And even if you don't believe this story, hear how amazing it is. The God of heaven came to earth and didn't come to be served. Look at me, it's all about me. Instead, Jesus says, I came to serve, not to be served. It was this upside-down way of seeing life and saying, my life and my lifestyle is connected to a higher purpose of caring for and serving other people tenaciously over and over and over again, loving and caring. I saw an interview with a pilot, Tammy Jo Schultz. She's a pilot with the Navy, and then she went on to pilot for Southwest. You probably heard about it a couple years ago because her engine blew. And as her engine blew and the, and the plane came cr- was on its way coming down, blew a hole in the side, sucked one of the passengers halfway out. Yet on the call to her and ground control, she's incredibly calm. We've got a problem. We need to land. She ultimately lands the plane and did the whole news circuit. And they said, how did you stay so calm in the middle of all of that chaos? She and her co-pilot couldn't even talk to each other. It was so loud they'd use sign language. Here's what she said. Habits developed without pressure become instincts under pressure. As a Navy flyer, she tenaciously developed the habits of the little things so that when tragedy struck, she was able to, out of instinct, respond. Jesus said, might be one of those idioms worth memorizing, when you're faithful in the little things, God will entrust you greater things. And the way you live your life today, it's the little things you do, the mundane things you do, God will reward you for in the future. So here's my question for you today. Are you willing to be tenacious to do the little things again and again and again? When you realize there's a God who did that for you, every morning that sun comes up, every morning he's willing to do the same thing again and again to be faithful then out of the faithfulness of that God you learn about from the Bible, you say, I want to do unto others what God has done unto me. For some of us, that's parenting. It can be very, very mundane, the same thing over and over and over again. But tenacity is doing it over and over and over again, and God honors that. Maybe you're a caregiver of someone in your life, and it's just, it's a thankless job. But God would say, just keep being tenaciously faithful time and time again, over and over again. I will reward you for that. In your career, how many times in your career you just started the career, you, you decided to go out on your own and do a startup, and what has is, what is really made you successful is tenaciously doing the little things again and again. It's what we do in our career. It's what we do in our relationships. And a greater source for reward and motivation can be the God of the Bible who motivated these three mighty men to do the same. And so today I'd like to do an extended interview with someone who's made his whole life about tenacity in his spiritual journey, He's been tenacious in his career of reinventing his, his music industry and his career multiple times. He's won nine Grammys, multiple Dove Awards. He was inducted into the Gospel Hall of Fame at the same time as Johnny Cash. Grew up near Elvis. He uh, toured the United States as a musician and then reinvented himself as a uh, man who co-founded a first independent publisher who brought up several platinum-winning, Grammy Award-winning artists, and then has reinvented himself again to take on the worship industry. 
And I want to do an extended interview today if you give a warm horizon welcome to Eddie DeGarmo. Eddie, come on down. Yeah, great to have you with us. Thank you. My pleasure. So you certainly have had an eclectic career. That's one word to describe it, yeah. I've so, done a lot of things, for sure. So let's start with where you guys grew up. So you grew up um, across the street from Elvis, I understand. I did. My family moved from Detroit in 1959 to Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, we bought a house that was literally across the street from Graceland. And I was just, I was a little guy. I was five years old. Uh, and didn't know a lot about Elvis Presley. He was really a star of my big brothers more than he was me, uh-huh. you know. But I knew he lived in a really cool house. He didn't ever seem to work very much. He, <laughs> he got to ride motorcycles and got to ride horses. And so from a from a really young age, I said, you know, that's what I want to do when I grow up. That's a, that's a good way to make a living. And, and I heard that you went uh, trick-or-treating at his house. I did. Not one of my smartest moments, actually. You know, uh, in those days, Elvis would open his gates up and the kids would line up the driveway. And I was one of them. And uh, that night, Elvis Presley handed me and autographed a dollar bill, a signed dollar bill. And I did what every other six-year-old would do. I immediately spent it the next day (laughs) and bought me some candy, you know. So that's my big claim to fame Elvis story. Now, if Elvis wasn't one of your influences, what were the musical influences that shaped kind of who you became and what your musical uh, well, gro- choice were? Growing up in the 60s in Memphis, there was a band on every street corner. Some of you will remember names like, you know, Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and the Box Tops. And, and soul music was a big part of Memphis because it's a very racially diverse city. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like to play that kind of music. But at the same time, we had these, you know, kind of fuzzy-headed guys coming over sees the British invasion bands like the Beatles and the Stones and the Dave Clark Five and all that. And so I kind of started melting those styles together from a pretty early age and, and got more confused, you know. But it, that's what I did. That was my musical influence. And when did you start your musical career? Well, I, I say it, it actually started at the West Memphis Dog Track because my dad, the good Baptist deacon, went to the dog track one night and won 1200 bucks. And he went out the next day and he bought me one of those little combo organs like, you know, the animals used on the House of the Rising Sun. And so I started playing in a dance band uh, really when I was right nine, ten years old. And you end up getting under musical contract from a pretty big label at what age? Fifteen. I signed my first major recording deal when I was 15 years old. I was a sophomore in high school. And it was London Records, which at the same time had, had the Stones and had ZZ Top and some big acts, and so I was on my way. And you kind of have been known for, uh, you kind of invented Christian rock and roll, we'll get into that in just a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, the genre didn't really exist prior to you, um, and <laughs> you guys end up having your first, uh, first Christian music video on MTV, right? Like MTV, the first Christian group that jumps yep. into it, it was you guys, and then you got banned. Yeah, so I, tell I, me about I, that. I got banned from a lot of places, guys. <laughs> You know, uh, but in 1983, four, somewhere thereabouts, uh, we had written a, a little song about the apocalypse and the Antichrist called 666. And, and we made a video of it, and it was in kind of the fledgling years of music video. 
and uh, depicted the Antichrist more or less as, as who he is. He's kind of a bad guy. And anyway, we, we lit him on fire in the video. And, uh, <laughs> but, but we did that to show that he was going to survive, right? And so MTV started playing the video, and it got in very heavy rotation. And then one day they decided to ban it because of violence. It was, you know, there was, there was an organization that was having congressional hear, hearings about violence and the lives of kids and stuff. And, and they caved to the pressure, and they banned our video. Now, the really awesome thing that happened is at the same time, it was on, on a lot of the Christian music TV stations. And so started with the Wall Street Journal, did an article on it in the, in the front page news. And then the CBS Evening News picked it up. And then the Today Show picked it up. So I became the guy, the Christian guy that got banned from MTV. <laughs> so No publicity is bad publicity, I guess. Baby. It worked out. And what's really ironic is they said, hey, if you take that scene out, of burning the Antichrist, we'll put the video back on. So our video director inserted, I mean, this is weird, but he inserted the nuclear holocaust instead of that. And it was okay. And it was okay. <laughs> so. Now tell me about your introduction to faith. Um, you had some brothers who served. Tell me a little about that story and kind of how that impacted your interest in spiritual matters. Well, it was the late 60s, early 70s, and I was really, you know, being baptized in the river of rock and roll. But it was at the, the peak of the Vietnam War, and I had two brothers that went to the service, and one went to Vietnam and one went to Germany. And I was a senior in high school when my brother from Germany came home, and he came home a very different kind of guy than what he left. And we were just middle-class America family. But when he came home, he went out and bought a big motorcycle, big motorcycle and started riding with a motorcycle gang. Hmm. And uh, we were pretty confident that he had just gone crazy, you know. But I would come home from playing at a dance or a club on Friday or Saturday night, and I would find my brother a lot of times just laid out in our carport, just hmm. too drugged or too drunk to get inside, and I would help him inside. Hmm. I came home one night probably 2 o'clock in the morning and uh, Saturday night and opened the door and there was a silhouette of somebody sitting at our breakfast table and it frightened me because the lights were off. So I reached over and I turned the light switch on. It was my brother and he had a Bible on one side of the table and he had a bottle of whiskey on the other side of the table. And he would stare at the Bible for a minute and then he would stare at the whiskey for a minute. And some those things represented obviously good and bad to him. Mm. And I said, what are you doing? He said, he said, sit down, Eddie. He said, I've got to tell you a story. He said, when I was overseas, he said, I went to a Bible study. And one night I asked Jesus to come into my life and forgive me of my sins. And he did. And he said, when I got home, I was just too afraid and too embarrassed to tell you or to tell mom or dad or, you know, tell my friends. And he said, so I went out and I rode this big motorcycle. And this was three or four months had gone by, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, I tried to drink it away and I tried to do drugs and take it away. But he said, Eddie, he said, God won't let me go. I get emotional thinking about it. But he said that to me. He said, God won't let me go. And that really spoke to me because he was in this painful place. Mm. You know, obviously a very painful place. I was just in a party life, you yeah. know. But God wouldn't let him go. 
And so over the next several months, uh, he really changed and turned his life around and uh, started telling me about about uh, Jesus and what that meant to him. In fact, we we actually got in a couple of fist fights about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, man, you're driving me crazy. You know, leave me alone. And I remember we room, we had a, you know, we lived in a small house, so he and I had two twin beds in a room. And one night he laid in me about 11 o'clock talking about Jesus, and I was like, please shut up, please shut up. And I prayed a prayer that you got to be careful about. I prayed a prayer. And I wasn't a praying kind of guy. But I said, God, either he's right or I'm right. And I want you to show me which one it is. And that was my beginning of my journey. So it sounds like that was your first taste of what the Bible might call grace. You know, religion is we, we, if you do good, God rewards you. If you do bad, you know, God's angry at you. Um, so you got to experience, here's somebody who was not doing well, and yet he had found a God who was willing to be with him in his worst moment. Well, that's right. That's right. And the, the wonderful thing about God in our lives is when we know him, he never leaves us or forsakes us. Yeah. Even through the hard times, and we all have hard times, and some of us have incredibly difficult times and suffering in our lives. You know, I've, I've got friends that have lost their children, you know, and I can't fathom that, but they yeah. have, you know. So, but, but God is always there with us through the highs and the lows. Now, but on the other side, so on the other side, you weren't at the low points. You're partying, you're living the life you hoped for, you got a music contract in a very early age. So just give a, give a snapshot for those who didn't grow up in the 80s and were big uh, uh, DeGarmo and Key fans. Give us a sense of the, uh, I had all the cassette tapes, just so you know, of uh, DeGarmo. Maybe eight tracks, actually. Yeah, eight tra- <laughs> so give us a sense of the level of success DeGarmo and Key had, for example, and some of the, the things you wanted and level of success you were operating at at that time? Well, we were one of the very first, what were labeled as a Christian rock band. We didn't know that was a label that existed. When when the Lord, you know, brought us to himself, and I, I, I say we because my partner, Dana Key, he, he was the first guy I talked to about Jesus, and we skipped school that day. I, you're not supposed to skip school, you know, but we did. And that's when he became a Christian. And over the next few weeks and months, we really just started writing songs about our faith and what had happened to us. And uh, other people said, well, can you do that? That's like Jesus rock music. And we never even thought about it. It was just we grew up liking this kind of music. Mm-hmm. And so it just came very natural for us to, to write and to play songs in the genre of music we liked. You know, if we'd have been country music fans, they probably would have come out country. Sure. Or polka music fans, that's kind of frightening. <laughs> but they would have come out polka. You and Weird Al. So, yeah. Us. And so, you know, we tried playing that music in bars. Yeah. We did. And, you know. You tried playing the Christian music we in did. bars. We did. How'd that and, go over? Well, <laughs> kind of like the Hindenburg, if anybody remembers that one. But, <laughs> you know, it, and I've worked with a lot of young artists. And, I mean, I don't have any any criticism for people that feel like that they want to be on that platform. Uh, but if, from a Christian standpoint, I think you'd be more effective just kind of sitting at the bar and talking to folks, you know, because when you get up on the platform, people have a tendency to throw things, you know. And you actually had tomatoes thrown at you, right? I but... did. I did. Got hit with a couple and uh, had record burnings, which those were pretty cool because, you know, I'd go out front and try to sell them records to burn. And yeah, that'd hack them off pretty good. 
But so you, in one sense, you had a niche market that didn't go anywhere. So you, you got music that's talking about your faith and journey that doesn't really fit in the bar scene where you're performing. And then you've got a Christian culture that's antagonistic toward rock and roll in general. In the early days, that's, that was, yeah. and when I say early days, I'm talking early 70s for us. It yeah. was 1972. In 1973, it was pretty much that way. We, you know, we were in no man's land, really. Sure. And I think a lot, you know, a lot of us, maybe not me in the rock and roll industry, but we've certainly, most folks long before they consider God, consider Jesus, consider his claims, they're turned off by Christians. Kind of the, 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 the hypocrisy of it all, the religious people who kind of glued stuff, politics to Jesus or their own preferences to Jesus. You kind of had a front row seat to Christian hypocrisy. Tell me a little bit about like how that showed up with, with your dad hearing the kind of publicity you're getting and oh, your yeah. daughter hearing about it. Oh, yeah. you, you're on the front row seat to Christian hypocrisy and judgment. Tell us a few stories about that. Well, I mean, when we first started writing songs about our faith, uh, there was one of the TV preachers that really got, got on the bandwagon kind of against us in Memphis. And, and I was still living at home. I was in college for the first year. And I got up early on a Sunday and I went downstairs and my dad had the TV turned on this guy and <laughs> he started talking about this band and this kind of music that would send their kids to hell or, or from Memphis is hail. You're right. It's like two words. And, uh, you know, send your, send your kids to hell. And, and, and the leader of this band is this, you know, low down Eddie DeGarmo. And, and my dad, he just kind of starts slowly turning his head. <laughs> over to me and what have you done son what have you done why can't you just be normal you know and so we had that moment and then fast forward a few years later uh, my wife and I have two girls of course they're raised now but when our youngest was I think in the fourth grade fifth grade she went to school one day and some kid had brought a church bulletin that had my photograph on the front of it and I did this crazy stunt one time but you know I was a keyboard guy you remember the days of the keytars you know I had one of those well I was biting my keytar <laughs> oh my gosh it's right and so this photograph was on the front of this bulletin and the, the headline was the real Satan <laughs> and it, it had my name and my little girl brings it home she goes daddy are, are you really the devil <laughs> Of course, she was joking, you know, and then she turned and run off. But, you know, we would go through stuff like that. We would. And I heard uh, your bassist got in trouble sometimes when you guys were performing. Yeah, he was one of these kind of guys that liked to dance a lot. And that was before the days that the Christians would let you do that, you know. And so <laughs> he, he would, you know, he would, he would get entranced and he'd, he'd gyrate his body in certain ways. So we told him that if he did that again, we were going to, like, special design a refrigerator box where his arms stuck out people, <laughs> you know people couldn't see him but I got in a lot of trouble uh, but the interesting thing about that that was the engine of publicity that God used to drive the message hmm. really was I mean it, I had to get a pretty thick skin through some of it but as I look back now uh, because you know in those days in the early days the radio stations wouldn't play us now they came around and started playing us Hmm. And, you know, and MTV started showing our videos. But, you know, we would tour all over the world in, in those days. And the young people, it was it was a good thing for them. And it, you know, brought them together in a way that 
would have been very difficult to do without music. Hmm. What are the ways in which, despite Christian hypocrisy, like how would you, why would you advocate people pushing through those caricatures or bad examples to find Christ? Because well, you were if, certainly on the front row of that. When, when you talk to somebody about Christian hypocrisy, you know, it's, it's fairly subjective because, you know, whether you have money or you don't have money, some people can be envious of that. Or, you know, some people say that they know Christ, but they live just another life altogether, and that's easy. You know, that's been through all of history since Jesus. I mean, especially through the Middle Ages and the prince bishops of, of Europe and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Interesting thing, though, when you talk to those people about who Jesus is, mm-hmm. they're like, well, I don't have a problem with loving people. Right. I don't have a problem with forgiving my enemies. Mm-hmm. So most of the hypocrisy is based on the way people act, mm-hmm. not the way that Jesus is. Mm-hmm. To try and separate. You'd, you'd recommend people to separate who Jesus is from whose followers. Or even Gandhi once said, yeah, you know, absolutely. how much he, he loved Jesus, just not the Jesus followers. Even me on a bad day, man. Oh, you know, yeah. oh. you don't want to be around me on a bad day. Sure. And uh, my wife reminds me of that constantly. <laughs> but, you know, and I just encourage people to, to look to who Jesus is and his claims. Interesting thing, when I retired a few years ago, five years ago, and I dropped out of college in 1976 as a senior in college. And I still can remember my mother's finger wagging in my face. You promised me if you're going to chase music, you'll finish college one day. So when I had the time and I had the money, I was like, eesh. So I went back to college and got my degree three years ago. <laughs> and actually... That's tenacity right there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did it kick my tail? But the cool thing for me, first of all, the coolest of things is I got to, you know, accept my diploma from my five grandkids. That was pretty cool. But I got to sit in classes with people that were 18, 19, and 20 years old Mm. and have some of these conversations with that group of people. Mm. Because, you know, to underscore my point, I find that most issues that people have or with their perceptions of, of people that say that they know Jesus but live another way, or mm. churches that say that they follow Christ but mm. show a different thing. Mm. It's really not with Jesus. But a lot of them don't know yeah, because they've really never read the Bible. Sure. You know, for, so I would encourage anybody that's having those kind of thoughts, just go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll be amazed at who Jesus is rather than our perceptions of, unfortunately, what us people have made him seem to be. Yeah. And, and just tell me practically like, how that played itself out. Like you lost so your, your best friend and you are come to know Jesus together. You build right. a successful career together. You did. You, you start a first music label ever that does you know, incredibly well. Um, and I was at the Grand Old Opry several years ago getting the tour, so I got to stand in that place where oh, yeah. Johnny Cash stood. Yeah. You, so tell me, how did Jesus, was he with you in the success when you're getting brought in the same day as Johnny Cash? And then how also, when you lose your best friend, did your faith impact you? Well, success is harder to handle. I will say that. You know, uh, success, I find, is, is where people in general think that it's all about them and what they've achieved and all that sort of thing. 
I find that it, through pain and suffering, all of us have a tendency to want to depend on God, mm-hmm. right? And when yeah. we get successful, we have a tendency to think that we don't need to depend on God. Sure. So I think that that's harder to do. And I've had a lot of success in my career. And, you know, uh, my partner, Dana Key is his name. Uh, he died. It's been almost 10 years ago. And we had gotten together to play a concert. We had retired in the early 90s from our band and you guys have enough nerve you know go to youtube and look up my band digarmo and key and you'll see some videos of me and you'll say what was wrong with him you know you got the classic so, 80s long hair well, yeah i mean and i was you know a very thin rock and roll guy but what happened with that too but any any anyway uh you can go look at that but my my friend my partner uh passed away a couple days after we found out we were being inducted into the Hall of Fame with Johnny Cash. And we thought that was a really cool moment because he was a Memphis boy too, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, But even even the weirder thing that came out of that, or well, ironic is probably a better way, is when my friends, he was a pastor at that time and in a big church, and they asked me to deliver the eulogy, but... They had decided, the family decided they wanted to have a small graveside service for my friend before that. And it was in June in Memphis. And if you've ever been in Memphis in June, its humidity is about 98, 99%. And it's, you know, usually mid-90s. So we, we were out there at the, the gravesite, And there was only 50 people because it was immediate family. And his family invited my wife and I because we were like family. And so his brother-in-law walks up to me just, you know, terrified with a terrified look on his face. He goes, Eddie, we got a problem. Hmm. And I said, what's the problem? He said, you know, somehow the pastor got the time wrong and he's still 45 minutes away. And he said, what are we going to do? And I said, bro, I said, you open, I'll close. So I preached my friend's funeral. Wow. Which was pretty heavy because I was totally unprepared. Sure. But at the same time, it was probably pretty genuine because of that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure it's the only time he sat still that I was ever talking to him in his whole, <laughs> whole time. But uh, I did. Oh, that's fun. Well, let's uh, take a little time on, on your business for a second. So you mentioned success for a moment. So you end up... Let's talk about how people have a trouble dealing with success. Because it's like, hey, if I get a Grammy, I would have made if I made a Grammy second Grammy, third Grammy, I've been inducted in the Hall of Fame. How does having an identity in God or Jesus help you handle success, either the fleetingness of it, of like how many Grammys is enough, or the idea of there's something in my life that puts those things in proper order? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think success is harder to handle on that level uh, because when when we're, you know, really suffering and uh, broke, it's easy to depend on, easier, I should say, to depend on God. Hmm. And uh, I've been blessed uh, beyond what I ever thought I would be with material gain and a great family. And success can be very difficult. And, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of great artists that in my business career, you know, after I retired from the band and I had formed this little record company, we became the largest independent record company of Christian music in the world. And then I sold that business to a major conglomerate in the mid-90s, and I went to work for them 
running their music publishing business and, you know, uh, got to work with really renowned artists like Chris Tomlin and, you know, Matt Redman and Amy Grant. And, and, you know, it was pretty much focused on Christian, but not all. And Toby Mack of DC Toby Talk. Toby Mack, fan, yeah, fan I, I'd signed him and DC Talk. And I would tell my artists, I said, you know, just remember, guys, Jesus is not going to ask for your autograph because hmm. he's not going to do that. Hmm. And uh, sometimes when we're successful, especially those in a public uh, platform, have a public platform, we, hmm. we believe that we should, or we grow to believe maybe we should be treated differently. Yeah. And it's anything but true. And how did, like I, I mentioned earlier, tenacity is this idea that there's a God who is worthy of worship, he's worthy of getting autographs, he comes and he serves. How did that idea of serving others and tenaciously committing to that value, that morality, that principle bring you back to humility in the but, middle of all that fame? I mean, two verses, you touched on one of them today, you didn't actually use the verse that I used, but Luke 16.10 says that you know, he's faithful in small things, can be faithful in great things. Yeah. And that was always a motto of mine. But, you know, I always tried, I, I wasn't successful at this, but I tried to seek the kingdom of God first. Mm-hmm. And these things would be added unto you. Yeah. I, you know, I, I didn't really seek fame and fortune first. And that sounds like a pretty humble statement. I'm not a really humble guy, but... It, it, it's like if you seek earthly treasure and you seek success, and I mean, it's really even what we teach our kids sometimes. We teach our kids about what they should do in life and spend a lot more time in that than about who they should be. Hmm. You know, and if we were to spend a lot more time with the young people about who they should be hmm. rather than what they're going to do, yeah. I think we'd see a real difference. So those those were business principles of mine that came from the Bible. Is if you seek the kingdom of God first, these things will be added to you. It doesn't say they might. It says they will be. Yeah. You know, and I can't tell you, you know, how many times I messed that up because it was a bunch of times. But yeah. that's what I tried to do. And in that, I think what Christianity offers is you are not your awards. You are not your success. You're not the number of sales you have. All those things are good, but ultimately, whatever number, you're more than a number, right? And so if you define yeah. yourself by a number, you're going to chase that and chase that. There's never a number high enough to satisfy a soul. But if you have your identity yeah. rooted in the God of the universe, you don't get much higher than that. Loves me, cares for me, values me, and all these other things are nice kind of gravy on top, but they're not ultimately the definition of who you are. Well, you, you know how much money it takes to make a rich man happy, right? How much? One more dollar. Hmm. Yeah. True. Very true. Hmm. Well, last question. Um, you talked about a few times in your life that you did hit the bottom. So you're at the top. You've hit the bottom as well. You said you had a back injury. You're not making any money. You're living off government assistance. And hmm. how did God meet you during that time? Well, not long after my wife and I got married. I was I was the ripe old age of 19 when we got married. And... Uh, when I was 21, I had a back, I had a little construction business that I had a back injury through in an accident. And it was in the dark ages of those kind of injuries. And uh, I got laid up and we lost everything we had and had to have back surgery 
1974, and the doctors were pretty sure I was going to be paralyzed. And we lost, like I said, whatever little we had, we lost and moved in. My parents were gracious enough to invite us to move in with them. Pretty humbling experience to move back in with mom and dad, you know, after you're married. Uh, But God really spoke to me clearer in that time, you know. So I've actually been on welfare. I've been on food stamps. And I was grateful for when I needed to have have those things. And I think it's good for society to have a safety net. I think it's wrong to make a career out of those things. But, you know, for me, it was a safety net. And uh, uh, very difficult period, but God was so faithful through that time period. Number one thing is my wife hung with me. Oh my gosh. You know, she was she was a good looking girl and young and in the prime of her life. She could have left me at my mom and dad's house a million times. Wow. You know, so that was a big deal. That she well, there's hung. that tenacity again, right? I mean, yeah. you, you found God faithful I at am. the top and at the bottom. And the Bible's not about faithful people. It's about a faithful God who continued to woo back faithless people. And there's your wife, again, investing the little things over and over again when she thinks she might have a paralyzed husband. There's you investing yeah. in your career, little things over time, because there's a God who's been so faithful to you. God has been certainly faithful to me, but it was through that very difficult period in my life that I, I felt like I heard God the loudest. Hmm. And, you know... When we started the Christian rock band and things got so hot for us and getting thrown out of all the churches and all that, I mean, it's pretty discouraging for a young guy, you know. Yeah, sure. But, uh, you know, God spoke to me when I was in that hospital bed. I mean, I don't know if it was a literal voice, but it might have been. I don't know what it was, but it certainly something that registered on my heart. Hmm. And he said, you know, all those things that you thought you needed, Hmm. he said, you don't have to worry about it anymore because you got nothing. Huh. He said, you got nothing to lose. Wow. Now go do what I asked you to do. Hmm. So we got the band back together. <laughs> <laughs> and that became the journey. And that worked out. In fact, uh, when I heard your story, again, it's a story of um, faithfulness from God, a story of your own journey. And I thought it would be fun for us to hear that story. And I asked Eddie if he'd be willing to close the service with a song. And so he's got lots of songs. If you grew up in the 80s, uh, you would have known for. Most of us you know, probably don't know songs like uh, Destined to Win and others. So I said, what would be a great song that would articulate your journey of faith? And so he agreed to do a little, uh, little Beatles for us today. Yeah, I'm going to do you know, a song that I think, think pretty much describes me before I knew Jesus. And you guys will recognize it. But I'll go over here. If I can. Uh, can we give him a round of applause and we'll listen to him this morning. Get over here. Well, let me lead us in a prayer. And maybe you've been at the peak of success or you're in one of those low valleys. And you say, I just need something to anchor myself to. I mean, I just love Eddie's story because it says you're more than a number. You're more than the size of your territory. You're more than the, the title on your wall. You're more than the last thing you succeeded at. If you're longing for something faithful, a God who had it all and was willing to say that he values you more than anything, the kind of becoming a Christian, inviting Jesus into your heart type of language Eddie used today, I want to lead in a prayer, which is a simple way to say to God what he was saying today. So if that's of interest to you, you can just bow your heads with me and say something like this. Say, God, I need you. I've had success. God, but I want significance. Forgive me for defining myself by a number.
And God, I want you to be the source of significance and identity in my life. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving me. Or maybe you're not at that place. You want to pray a prayer like Eddie did and just say, God, I don't know who's right. But show me. Help me to consider who you are. Not the caricatures I've come across. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you head out today, if you head to the atrium, if you're interested more in Eddie's story, he wrote a book called Rebel for God. And a little highlights uh, CD you can get at the back atrium. And if you want to be tenacious about your own journey, uh, especially in the sense of work as well, we are starting tonight. Ken Kington's with us for our men's study. And so we are going to start a study tonight, 7.30 tonight. You're like, uh, well, you know, should I come? Come. It's at 8 o'clock tonight and tomorrow morning. It's going to talk about how do you find a, a connection with God in the workplace and, and work-life balance? How do you become the man you want to be? How do you become the husband you want to be? We invite you to be part of that. But we thank you for joining us today. Join us next week as we continue our series on Lionhearted. Thanks so much.